I'm going to read for you from Acts chapter 20, and uh, we're going to read from verse 17, page 1117, Acts chapter 20 and uh, verse 17. So the context is this, we're working our way through the book of Acts, and uh, Paul, one of the very earliest leaders in the Christian church, one of the very, very earliest followers of Jesus, at least amongst those who weren't with him during his earthly ministry, um, he is on one of his missionary journeys. In fact, it's his last missionary journey. We know that uh, from Acts 19 that he spent three years in the city of Ephesus uh, teaching, proclaiming the good news, gathering people into the kingdom, and building up the church. He's then gone and spent uh, the winter um, uh, up in Corinth, and now um, he's heading towards Jerusalem, and he want, he's in a hurry. Paul, I think, spent quite a lot of his life in a hurry, but um, he was heading for Jerusalem, and uh, he was trying to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, which was um, already a, a, a Jewish festival that had then become infused with fresh meaning on the giving of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know whether you've ever sort of had in your head a sort of timeline for all this, but just in case it helps, almost certainly we have this almost down to a, a week and a month of a year. Um, this, is, this is a few days before Pentecost in AD 56. Just if that helps you, it doesn't really matter to the passage, but sometimes it's quite nice to actually put a pin in the timeline and go, okay, this is when it's happening. The intriguing thing about what Paul does at this point is that he doesn't go to Ephesus. He's, he's up in Corinth, which is north of Ephesus, and he's heading to Jerusalem. But rather than sort of stopping in, he travels about 30 miles south and stops off at a place called Miletus. And um, I don't know, people have speculated as to whether he, he loved Ephesus so much and he knew that the people of Ephesus loved him so much that he didn't want to get sort of stuck there. Um, so he thought, well, actually, I need to get to Jerusalem, so I'm going to bypass it, but I do want to talk to the to the elders, to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. I want to give them their marching orders. I want to give them a sort of final word. Because he knew in his spirit that this was his final journey. This was his final uh, walk, even near Ephesus. And so we're going to hear the words that he says uh, to these elders. And we're going to hear something of uh, the beating heart of what made Paul uh, who he was. So, um, this is uh, verse 17 of chapter 20 of Acts. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task of the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the words and the sentences that follow where I just stopped, what you hear is Paul um, talking to these uh, leaders of the Ephesian church and giving them a commission, giving them, if you like, their marching orders, giving them their instructions. And part of his marching orders to them, if you read on from the, where I just stopped, 
into the rest of Acts chapter 20, is you'd see him laying out before them um, his own life in front of them and saying, look, you've seen how I've lived amongst you, you've seen what my priorities have been, you as leaders of God's church should do the same. So right towards the end of chapter 20, he talks about the way in which he um, gave everything to serve the weak and the poor. How he wasn't out for selfish gain, but actually worked, um, sort of had his own personal business in order to furnish himself and not have to be a burden on anybody else. The way in which he never held back from telling them what they needed to hear for sake um, of fear or favour. And he also warns them that there are going to be those he calls the wolves that are going to come amongst you as sheep. And he says there are even going to be people from amongst you who are going to start turning you against the truth, the good news of Jesus. And he commissions them as leaders to be good shepherds of God's flock. It was a very heavy commission that he was giving them because actually in those days they knew that shepherds somehow sometimes actually had to lay down their lives for the sake of their sheep. There really were wolves and bears and mountain lions. And like uh, the little uh, shepherd boy David ended up with his uh, sling of stones and just his staff against Goliath, he knew that he was giving to these church leaders uh, a heavy duty, an awesome responsibility. And they're going to really miss him. Those last few sentences of chapter 20 um, are very moving. When he said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed, and they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. But before he ever gets on to this commissioning for these church leaders, in the sentences that I've read for you this morning, what we hear and what we read is unique in the whole of the book of Acts in being a sermon, a talk, a gift, not to those who are on the outside of faith looking in, but to the church. It's actually got a lot of language in common with his letters that you find elsewhere in the New Testament, also written to local Christian churches. And it seems to me that what we've read is actually Paul lifting the lid on his life. I mean, in human physical terms, it's like sort of exploratory open-heart surgery. He metaphorically sort of opens up his chest and says, see my heart, see what makes me tick. Or in more mechanical and maybe less squeamish terms, he lifts the bonnet on the car and says, look under the hood, this is the engine that has driven me. You've seen my life, you're about to hear my commission to live the same way, now I want you to be in on what it is that empowers me? What drives me? What is it that makes me who I am? And at the heart of it all is very simply grace. Verse 24, he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, that is the task of testifying to the gospel, literally means the good news of God's grace. Um, a couple of days ago at our kitchen table, um, we had unusually for us um, a very brief moment of theological conversation. Um, you'll probably be relieved for my, my children's sake, but that doesn't often happen around the Frank family kitchen table. Um, it came up because I had um, the great delight of a, a group of year six from Warple School who came to spend, spend a little bit of time in here on um, Thursday or Friday afternoon, and we were talking about Christian worship, and one of the words that came up, actually we were listening to a, one of the choruses that we sing here and we were just picking out words that we didn't understand. One of the words was grace. 
And so I said to my kids at the kitchen table, slightly tongue-in-cheek, you guys know what grace is, don't you? And I'm not going to tell you which one of them it was, but one of them rolled their eyes and went, yes, Dad, you talk about it all the time. Um, which I guess teenagers are allowed to say. Um, but I guess it's true. I am in grave danger of, of, um, of boring you with something. In fact, um, it occurred to me as I'm sitting here just before the first service this morning that um, you've been listening to me talk about grace for exactly as of yesterday, 12 years. Because um, it was the 1st of July, 12 years ago, um, that I was uh, licensed here. And I remember that my first, fi- probably nobody else will remember, but my first five sermons were all on grace. Um, different aspects of what grace was, um, of God... God's stepping towards us before we've ever stepped towards him. God, in fact, in Christ, running towards us with open arms of love, not just before we've stepped towards him, but actually while we actually have our backs turned to him and are running the other way. That grace is God's free, unmerited, unearned, unlosable love towards us. God loving us before we've done anything for him. God already having acted in Jesus for you, for me, having done everything we already need before we were even born, before we had anything to offer, before we were the right kind of person doing the right kind of thing that others or he approved of. God's grace given to us. The story is told of C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia Chronicles, but also one of the great theologians of the last century. Um, He, uh, I'm told, was representing Uh, the Christian faith, at a great meeting in the very early days of um, what became the UN, of um, world faith leaders. All the different faiths gathered um, in a room talking about what the different faiths represented and how they could live and work together for peace and so on. And the story is told that um, somebody came into that room and said, Professor Lewis, explain to us please, what is the heart of the Christian faith? What makes it unique? What's different about it? What is it that makes Christianity, Christianity. And apparently, with hardly pausing for breath, he said, well, that's easy. Grace. It is entirely true to say that the Christian faith is the only worldview, the only faith, that says that God steps towards us before we've done anything for him. In any other faith or worldview that has any notion of spirituality or of God or gods, the onus is on us. Do this in this way, and you will either achieve that higher consciousness or this spiritual state of being, or you might possibly be good enough for this to happen, to be welcomed into heaven or to achieve nirvana or to move up the ladder in terms of reincarnation, whatever it is. That's the way religion works. Religion in general is about what I achieve. Can I be good enough? Can I be religious enough? Can I be prayerful enough? Can I do what I'm told well enough? And if I am, maybe God will love me. Or maybe I will achieve that spiritual state that I so long for. And actually the Bible says entirely the opposite. It is unique. That God has loved us and continues to love us, whoever we are, whatever we've done, before we're even aware of him. And that his love isn't something that we have to earn by being good, nor can we ever lose it by being bad. Simply a gift. Simply given to us. Paul has decided that there is nothing that comes even close to being the motivation for his life. 
than the gospel of grace, the good news of God's free, unmerited favour towards us, the good news of God's grace. John, can you do me a favour? Could you switch off your music player? I, probably nobody else can hear. Oh, good, it's not just me going, thank you. I just pulled down the slider, but I haven't actually switched off. I'm sorry, no, I'm probably none of you beyond the first row could hear that, but I was just aware of thinking, which song is that? Oh, no, hang on. Um, the good news of God's grace. That's what motivates him. That's what his whole life is about. He's going to testify to it. He's going to spread it. He's going to speak of it. And he's going to look for a response. You see, the thing about Paul was that he wasn't content simply to go around telling people good news. Actually, he wanted people to respond. This good news of Jesus, this good news of God's grace is meant to provoke a response. Not just once, but a daily response. Actually, that's what news is always meant to do if it's really news. If it's good news, it's only good if it's going to change us, if it's going to make a difference. And this good news, as far as Paul is concerned, is meant to bring from us, people like you and me, daily repentance and faith. There is this beautiful, pithy, one-sentence summary of what it is to be a Christian. It's one of my favourite in the whole of Scripture, and it's here, um, there, in verse 21. He starts with a declaration of the universality of God's grace. It says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks. Now, in his worldview, Jew and Greek pretty much summed up the whole of humanity. They were like the polar opposites. You and I, I was trying to think what an equivalent for us, we might say, from the east to the west, from the north to the south, everyone is included. I'm going to declare to everyone, he says, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. Not just once in terms of a coming to faith, but a daily response to the grace of God. What do we mean by those things? Repentance. Now, repentance is one of those words we do occasionally use in sort of everyday non-religious life. Um, you quite often slightly ironically, um, tongue-in-cheek, you know, oh, you know, I repent, I shouldn't have said that. You know, it's that repenting from, it's about saying, I've done wrong, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done it, I repent. A repenting from. The problem is, don't we just hate, I mean properly hate, being told to repent? I mean, even if somebody doesn't use that language, somebody who comes to you and says, you're wrong, you need to say sorry, you're in the wrong, oh boy, it gets us right in here, there's a really visceral response. You see it most often in children simply because they don't have yet the adult sort of um, way of sort of hiding this stuff, but actually, you know, you say to a child, you need to say sorry, oh, it's right in here. They may know that they're wrong. It's not about knowing whether they're wrong. It's actually, am I going to admit it? Am I going to respond to that? We hate it. One of the reasons we hate it is because our immediate reaction when we've been caught out is to go, yeah, but everybody is doing it. I'm not the only one. I mean, kids definitely say that. Now, they're, they're doing it too, or they did something else really bad, or it was their fault. Actually, as adults, we know that's also true, that we don't want to be... We're, if somebody tells us we're in the wrong, we want to say, well... Yeah, but everybody else is too. Um, there's a thought experiment that sometimes I've done over many, many years um, where you simply get people to imagine a queue of people, big long queue, queuing up for something. And at the very front of the queue, you put the very nicest, best, I was going to say goodest, that's really not a word, um, the most good people that you can possibly imagine. I don't know who you, who you personally would put at the front of the queue. Mother Teresa. 
um, 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 uh, Martin Luther King, um, Gandhi. I mean, I don't know who, you, who would be at the front of your queue. Imagine them there, okay? Might be some people you know personally. The very nicest, most holy good people. And at the very back of the queue, sorry to you guys over here, don't take this personally, at the very back of the queue are the very worst people who've ever lived. You might put Pol Pot down here, or Hitler, or Stalin, and, and again, maybe you'll have individual examples. Now, imagine this queue, from the very worst to very best, Okay? A little thought experiment for you, rhetorical question. Don't put up your hand and tell me. Where are you? Honestly and truly, where are you? Okay? Worst people down this end, best and nicest people up this end. Now, I've been asking this question for years, and in a small group, I do get people to tell me. Okay? Over all the years, almost every single person puts themselves somewhere near the middle. Yeah, I'm seeing a good number of nods and smiles. Somewhere near the middle. Now, I think it probably says a lot about us, depending on whether we put ourselves slightly above or slightly below. Some of us think, well, I'm not perfect. I know a lot of people better than me, I'm sure. But there's a lot of people worse than I am. Okay? So I'm, just, I'm probably just a bit above, bit above the middle, slightly better than, you know, the average. There's some of us probably feel the opposite. We think, well, yeah, I'm a bit of a mess. There's loads of people better than me. I mean, there are people worse than me, but don't get me wrong. But, the, I'm, but actually, wherever we put ourselves, being told to repent feels terrible because it feels like we're being lumped in with everybody down this end of the queue. We hate it. We think, well, who are you to tell me? Who are you to, to tell me to repent? You're just as bad as I am. But there's a second reason I think we hate being told to repent, and that's because of how much we guard our very fragile sense of self. You see, if you're told to repent and you admit it and you go, yeah, you're right, do you know what we fear the most? I think we fear condemnation. We fear that concrete block weight of being condemned, of being crushed beneath that sense of, well, that means you're no good. That big finger-wagging moment that just makes us feel terrible. And at a really visceral level, we really resist it. Maybe with good reason. We hate the idea of being condemned. We hate this idea of being crushed. We spend all our lives trying to protect our self, our sense of self-esteem, our self of sense of self-worth. The thought of going, yeah, you're right, I've messed up, is horrifying. And yet, at the same time, we know we're not right up at the front of the queue. I mean, on a daily basis, we're not even the people we aspire to be, let alone the people that God might aspire for us to be. We're, we're so far away from perfect that even give us, given half an hour of our lives, we can't live an entirely perfect life in thought and word and deed. So what are we to do? Well, here's the crucial thing. When Paul writes about repentance in verse 21, notice how he puts it. He says, they must turn to God in repentance. He doesn't at this point simply say repent from sin. He includes that. The word repentance is, in Greek means a change of mind, a turning around. We turn from something, absolutely. But he says we turn to God. Here's the good news. God is the one person who can tell us repent. Because he's the one person, not even in the queue. He's so far off the end of it, he's out of sight. He is entirely holy. He is the one person to whom we can't say, you're just as bad as I... Well, of course we can't. God is perfect, holy. He's allowed to say to us, he must say to us, you're in the wrong. But here's the glory. The one person who would have the right to condemn us chooses not to. 
the one person who would have every right to crush us with a sense of our own sin and our own unworthiness simply says to us, I do know the very worst of you, and I know the very best of you, and I've chosen in Jesus to love the whole of you. That beautiful moment in the Gospels when Jesus says to the woman who has, had been about to be stoned by the crowd for her perceived sins, and them in their righteous indignation, assuming that they could condemn her. And Jesus turns to her and says, I don't condemn you. And he also says, therefore go and sin no more. In other words, turn away from sin to me. What a relief! I mean, what an amazing relief to be able to repent knowing that the one to whom we turn in repentance will not condemn us, that he does know the very worst of us, and he chooses to love us. There are umpteen stories over the years of criminals who've been on the run for years and years and years and years and years and eventually hand themselves in because they cannot bear it any longer. It's incredibly hard work living a double life. It's incredibly hard work keeping up appearances. We know that because we all do it in our everyday lives. We try and put on our best self towards others. Here's the good news. God already knows the very worst about you. There's no point in hiding it. And God already loves you in Christ. He does not condemn you. Repentance. Turning to God in repentance. And, he says, we respond to God's grace in faith. I'm sure that we think of faith as belief. Simply, my faith is what I believe. As if faith is a sort of thing that we can choose to or not to, that it's a set of stuff, a, a list of propositions about God or a, an inner feeling, a sense of a, a, a sort of badge we can wear with pride. This is my faith. Sometimes people talk of faith as simply something we belong to, a faith group uh, a way of, of sort of labelling ourselves in a particular way. But actually the Bible describes faith not as what I believe, but on where I place my weight, what I stand on, what I trust. Um, I saw on the BBC website, I think it was this week, but I've seen photos of it before, of a very unusual hotel. I don't know where in the world it is. And it's a hotel where the individual rooms are bolted to the side of an enormous, terrifying rock face. And to get to your hotel room, you have to climb down this rock face. It's clearly for climbers and idiots. Um, to climb down this... Sorry. To climb down... It looks terrifying. To climb down this rock face. And you get into this see-through pod. See-through underneath as well. High, high, high up bolted to the side of this rock face. And that's where you sleep for the night. Okay? Now, I'm looking at a sea of faces here that imply that none of you would choose to spend a night in that hotel. But if you were speaking to somebody who was spending a night in that hotel, what you could not say to them is, you're, trusted, you're lying down and I'm not. What you'd have to say to them is, you're lying down in a pod bolted to the side of a cliff. I'm lying in a nice, safe bed in a normal house built on good foundations. But you're both lying down. The question is not whether you put your trust in something. It's not whether you put your weight on something. It's not whether you need something that's going to hold your weight at night. The question is, what is it? Is it a good thing to put your trust in? The thing about faith is not whether you've got faith. Everybody's got faith. 
Everybody puts the weight of their lives on something. The question isn't whether you've got faith. The question is, what's your faith in? Is it a good thing? Is it a sensible thing? Is it a wise thing? Is it going to carry you? And of course, that reminds us that it's not about how much faith that we've got. It's about what we've got the faith in. You know, if, if you're standing on quicksand, it doesn't actually matter how strong your legs are, you're going down. If you're standing on rock, it doesn't matter how weak your legs are, you're okay. Faith is not about how strong my faith is. It's not about how well I believe. It's actually about what, and Paul would want to say, in whom I place my faith. Where are you standing? Everybody has faith. We can place our faith in our careers. We can place our faith in the opinion of others. I think plenty of us do. We can place our faith in our families or in what's in the bank or in being successful or famous. We can place our faith in all sorts of things. But you're going to place your faith in something. Your life is going to be standing on something. You can't just hover. The question is, on whom will you place your faith? And Paul says, have faith in our Lord Jesus. He is convinced, I'm convinced, that faith in the Lord Jesus is enough because the Lord Jesus will carry the full weight of my life. He will never drop me. He will never put me down. His legs will never get weary. His arms will never run out of strength. He will carry me through this life, through all its ups and all its downs. He will carry me even through death to the life of the world to come. Will your career do that? Will your family do that? Will your bank balance do that? Will your good looks do that? Will your successes do that? Will your belief system do that? My question to us all is not, do you have faith, but in what or in whom? And it's not even, how much faith do you have? It's where are you placing it? That's an important question for you, even if you've been following Jesus for years. Because my sense is that although in that, maybe that first moment of commitment and repentance and faith, it feels like we could never walk away from Jesus. Now, the pressures of life and the pressures of culture are so strong that we end up placing little bits of our weight in other places. A little toehold here, a little elbow here. I'm just going to lean a little bit of my weight on my career. I'm going to rein a little bit of my weight on my family. I'm going to rein, um, lean a little bit of my weight on what's in the bank. And the Bible never says none of the, that those things are unimportant. It simply says they won't carry your full weight. They won't carry you through life. They won't carry you through death. They won't carry you through to the life of the world to come. But Jesus will. God in Jesus has stepped towards us before we ever step towards him. God in Jesus, as we often say, has lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And then he's died the death we must not face alone so that we're not condemned, but that we can be forgiven. And that he's risen to give us the sure and certain hope of being carried even through death to the life of the world to come. Where are you placing the weight of your life? Two challenges for us this morning. There are some of us who I suspect have never ever consciously decided 
to respond to the grace of God with repentance and faith. That time when we simply say, I recognize that I'm not the person I want to be. I'm not the person God made me to be. I am sorry. And where we repent towards God, we turn from the life that we've been living and we turn to the God who already knows the worst about us and who will not crush us with condemnation, but welcomes us in Jesus with open arms of love. And as we've said, I'm sorry, we say, thank you. I'm going to place the full weight of my life on you. I'm going to ask you to carry me through this life. I'm going to rely on you, not on me. If you've never done that before, why not today? There's no point putting it off. There's no point waiting. Actually, this Jesus is for you. He's given himself for you. He simply asks that you would love him in return. It's about saying sorry. It's about saying thank you. It's about saying please. Please help me to live for you. Please help me to rely on you. Please fill me with yourself. If you've never done that before, do it today. Why not? And if you have, remember that to follow Jesus, remember that to be a Christian is a daily discipline, a daily decision to repent and to have faith. Because we mess up. We're always messing up. There is no one day in any of our lives when we can say, I have perfectly followed Jesus. I have perfectly put the full weight of my life on him. There is no day where we don't need to say to Jesus, I am sorry. I repent. I turn. I place the the whole weight of my life on you. Do it today. Do it every day. We're going to share communion in a few minutes' time when the children have rejoined us. Communion is a beautiful moment to do that. I love communion because its whole picture language is about grace, repentance, and faith. It's all summed up there. The grace of God is shown in the bread and wine. Jesus died for you before you even knew Jesus existed. Jesus gave himself before you'd done anything for him. Pure grace. Then there's repentance. We come, we kneel, or we stand at the communion rail. We've come empty-handed, and we simply have to say to God, I've got nothing to offer but myself. In all my brokenness and mess. And then that faith is simply done by taking in our hands a piece of bread, taking a sip of wine, receiving from God and saying, you know, I want you to feed me. I want you to sustain me. I want your life living in me. I want to put the whole weight of my life on you. So whether it's for the first time or the umpteenth time, let's respond to that grace of God in Jesus. And let's, with Paul, say, this is what my life is about because Jesus made the whole of his life about this. Let's pause for a moment in silence, and uh, just as uh, we prepare to continue in worship, and in a few minutes' time, the children come and join us. Let's just in our own hearts be still. Let's reflect on whether we have in our own hearts and minds received that grace responded with repentance and faith, put the whole weight of our lives on Jesus. And if we've not, now's the time to do it. We simply say sorry that we're not the people God made us to be. We say thank you, Jesus, for living and dying and rising for me. We say please come and fill me with yourself and help me to put the weight of my life on you. And if you've done it before, remember to do it again today and each day.